0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, I am your host, Ben Pekulski. We frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body you love, and your greatest life can be this very subjective thing. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? It's always different. But one thing that we can say for sure, it probably has something to do with being happy maybe being joyful, being fulfilled, feeling significant. And all of those things start in your mind. So all these things, these goals that we set for ourselves, whether it be physical or financial or relational, everything kind of comes back to, am I actually getting fulfillment, joy, happiness, and significance? And The brain is the root of all of this, and it seems as though many of us are fighting a battle against our brain rather than creating a brain that works for you, that works with you, that works to open up doors, make great decisions, and empower you to move forward with confidence, direction, and ultimately accomplish goals. And today's guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, has written an absolutely fantastic book brainwash, talks about how we are victims to our environment, victims to our technology, and victims to our food. And this is something I've been telling you guys about for a long time. And Dr. Perlmutter has literally done the most incredible job of describing what's happening, how we're all victims to it, and how maybe we can start to change our relationship with our lives, everything around us, including taking control of the way that our brain thinks Becoming more goal-directed, becoming more capable and competent of making rational responses rather than irrational animalistic reactions. So we have these animalistic reactions built into our brain in a part of the brain called the amygdala, and the amygdala is responsible for keeping us alive, for sending us after food, for making us procreate, and ultimately our fear-based responses. and These things are literally built into our culture that take us out of our prefrontal cortex and put us into our amygdala and making us have to feel like we have to keep up and making us feel like we're running away from fear and ultimately creating this low-level anxiety that many of us, if not all of us, live with. Dr. Perlmutter and his son, Austin, have created a book that I think every one of you should go out there and read it's called brainwash. Just before we begin guys, I want to bring you a special message from our new and amazing sponsor Bub's Naturals. Now, I say new because they're new to the podcast, but you may have heard me talk about this before when I talk about my intelligence coffee. My morning ritual is really really good quality organic coffee, light roast always adding in two scoops of bubs MCT, one to two scoops of bubs collagen, 600 milligrams of alpha GPC and three grams of lion's mane creates my intelligence coffee, lights my brain up. And Bubs has been so incredibly gracious to give us a discount on their products. And as I said, I've been using this product for about 18 months uh, and I just noticed such a significant difference between this one and every other one. And people say, Ben, why do I want MCT and why do I want collagen? Well, MCT is a precursor to ketones in your body. So your body can produce ketones from MCT and MCT, it seems can't actually be stored as fat. It goes directly to your liver and is, is, is turned in. To fats your body can use f- to produce ketones for fuel. Collagen, on the other hand, if you're not already taking collagen, I highly suggest you do it. This is one of my five kind of essential supplements because anyone who has an animal based diet, if you're eating a lot of animal muscle meat, you're likely consuming a high amount of methionine, the amino acid methionine. And the methionine to glycine ratio is very important in our body to maintain. Balance. So, glycine is an essential amino acid found in collagen that is responsible for supporting glutathione production, supporting detoxification, regulating blood sugar, many, many positive benefits, including the one that most of you know of, which is hair, skin, and nails, but that's just a small part of it. So, I suggest that everyone consumes. Collagen in their diet. And maybe about 10% of your overall protein intake can come from collagen. And I suggest you use Bubs because it tastes amazing. It's by far the best quality I've ever come across. And that's not lip service in any way. Collagen MCT from Bubs. Go to bubsnatural.com and use the code intelligence to get 10% off your order. And without further rambling from me, I give you Dr. Perlmutter. So Dr. Pomotter, as I was saying just prior to hitting record here, I um, have the incredible pleasure of reading your recent book, Brainwashed. I've also read Brainmaker and I think a couple other books by you as well. But just this book, more than anything, really hit home for me because I think in the society we live in, we're so disconnected from each other because we're so, as your book will eloquently say, brainwashed into this materialistic, consumerism, social media-driven society. And ultimately, people don't really have a choice is something you really stated eloquently in your book. It's like, you're being manipulated. And, know, I was just talking about on a recent podcast is like, I'm pretty disciplined. I'm pretty mentally strong, but I found myself falling into the loop very recently as well, where I was like, man, I'm mindlessly scrolling. Like I'm doing things when I shouldn't be like with my kids, I've got my phone in my hand. And it's this idea of like your brain is just getting this little hit of dopamine, this little hit of reward. And all of a sudden it's like the coke addict who just has one little hit and then boom, it's down the spiral. And I'd love to have you just talk about why this topic came up for you because obviously you've been a brain expert for a long time. And uh, I think
1: you hit the nail on the head. I'm delighted and we'll spend as much time as you want and we'll go anywhere you want. I'm open with that.
0: First of all, talking about where it begins for people, right? So we, we know, and people I think at at a, at a conscious level maybe know that there's some level of manipulation going on. Like you are ultimately being subjected to neuroscience tactics and principles that they know are going to make you compelled to use your phone all the time. but it's been suggested that, you know, the average person is on their phone four to six hours a day, which is, and that's on social media. That's obscene. And I'd just love to talk to you about like where you, you started seeing this happening in your life and why you decided to write the book.
1: Let me first say that. So it's about six hours a day that we Americans are in front of one screen or another. And that might be your phone. It might be your tablet. It might be your computer or television for that matter. But just that statistic should be worrisome because, there aren't a lot of hours in the day, especially when you hopefully subtract eight of those hours dedicated to sleep. You've got time for exercise, meditation, preparing your food, eating your food. So if you're taking six hours out of your day just to be mindless on the internet, just from that perspective alone, wow, what did you eliminate that was otherwise going to be good for you? And I also, you know, get back to your question about what was the motivation here? How did all this get started? You'll notice that the book was written with another physician, uh, Austin Perlmutter, MD. Strangely, we have the same last name, but that's our son. What can I say? So Austin and I were actually in this very room where you and I are talking today. We kicked our feet up. We're, We're just talking about some of the frustration that we have in practicing medicine in that, gosh, we do everything we possibly can to learn as much material read the journals, go to the meetings, learn everything we can, step one. Step two, then we do our best to transmit that information one-on-one to our patient. Here's what you need to be doing, why more exercise is going to be better, all the things that we we try to impart. But it's step three that we have the biggest letdown, and that is the follow-through, the action doesn't happen. in 50 to 80% of the time doesn't happen. And that can even not just be with respect to making the lifestyle recommendations about the food, the exercise, you name it, but even in terms of medication, people just don't do things. We realize that this decision-making problem that we seem to have, we call it noncompliance, blaming the patient. Oh, that patient's noncompliant. That's a label that's been developed for that person who doesn't follow through, putting them in a category of people who don't listen to their doctor. Well, It's a bigger problem than that, that we all impose upon ourselves ideas about what we should be doing. You know, Ben, you yourself probably say, well, today I'm going to do X number of squats or I'm not going to eat such and such, whatever it is. And oftentimes we don't do what we think we should do. And there's no one excluded from this, I promise you. And we blame ourselves just as sure as the doctors blame the patients, we end up blaming themselves. And as you described earlier, truly the deck is stacked against us. So many of what goes on in our modern lives is taking us away, rewiring our brains figuratively and literally to keep us from locking into the good decision-making part of the brain, that area that we call the prefrontal cortex. It's an area that says, let's make a decision today That may be beneficial for us tomorrow, not just for me, but for others around me, for the planet. What's the outcome going to be? What are the consequences of what I choose today? If I eat the jelly donut or I decide to fast or I decide to eat some food that's good for me, what are the consequences tomorrow or in 10 years? When our decision-making is impulsive, in other words, coming from an area of the brain called the amygdala, we don't care. We just do it, and that's it, and that's the best we can do because our brains are wired that way, and it's not our fault. We don't have the hardware anymore to make better decisions. So the idea of blaming the patient, I think we need to move past that as physicians, as, as healthcare providers, and the idea of blaming ourselves, I think, needs to be reassessed as well. So many people blame themselves for not being able to stick to it. There are countless books out there now, wonderful books, whether you think uh, being paleo or keto or vegan, whatever it is, that's interesting to you. You bought all the books, you signed on to the online summit, and you learned everything you could. Wonderful. But if you don't follow through, it's worthless. You can buy all the books you want. We know this. Now that I say that, you're saying, yeah, duh, we get that. But uh, the reality is so many people buy the books, get all the information, and that's as far as it goes. So we can go on the websites and read about how this new thing might be good for us, how to target inflammation or enhance mitochondrial function, reduce the action of free radicals, whatever it is. But we got to act. And unfortunately, so much conspires against us to give us access to that part of the brain. So we have become disconnected from the good decision maker in the room. And we call this in the new book in Brainwash, we call this disconnection syndrome. We get disconnected from this prefrontal cortex that allows us to make good decisions. We know that not getting enough restorative sleep severs our connection. We know that a pro-inflammatory diet severs our connection not getting any contact with nature, not exercising, not relating to other people. All of these choices that we make in a single day threaten our ability to remain connected to that part of the brain that really is our gift as humans, our gift that allows us to conceive of a future, plan for the future, that allows us to participate in something called empathy, where we can see the world through another person's framework, another person's eyes, as opposed to where we end up when we sever that connection, we end up behaving from the, uh, the amygdala, where our decisions are short-term based. What do I want right now? Other people be damned. And it fosters an us versus them mentality, which you and I know is pervasive around the world right now and being fostered by the process of inflammation. So one of the central themes of brainwash is that this inflammation that you know you've talked about at length in the past being central to things like diabetes cancer alzheimer's heart disease all of these chronic conditions uh, this inflammation is front and center as it relates to keeping us from connecting to that part of the brain that we desperately need and you know in the context of our western diet being pro-inflammatory and the knowledge that this Western diet is becoming the global diet, increasing inflammation, it is then looked at through this lens of the global diet making us more us versus them, fearful and impulsive.
0: Incredible explanation. And the book does such a good job of kind of clearly defining this relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that anyone who reads the book will go, okay, I get it. And it gave me such a great framework where I can make decisions now and like, Hey, is this feeding the amygdala or is this feeding the the prefrontal cortex? And that's literally how I view it every life or every day. One thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, some people will come into this conversation, listening to this podcast saying, you know, Dr. Perlmutter, up until this point of my life, I know I've been very amygdala driven. I have all of these things that have happened to me in my childhood. You know, this is my genetics. This is my environment. What would you suggest people do who have that dialogue in their brain? This is just who I am. How do we start breaking that habit? Any suggestions on that?
1: Well, I think the internal conversation needs to be, this is who I am, but who do I want to be? And the empowerment part of neuroscience is what we call neuroplasticity, that we can rewire the brain. You know, you talk to any of the leading neuroscientists, that's kind of standard discussion now that we have the opportunity to make things better. And yes, we have all had our amygdala moments. I describe one in the book where somebody was abusive to my wife and Boy, I had an amygdala moment that I luckily was able to bring the adult back into the room to rein in, or who knows what would happen. Very transparent about it. I'm we're all in this together, we're all trying to, you know, to do better. And I'd say that uh, the first part of the book is really focused on calling out all of these threats on wiring of our brains. How our digital experience is absolutely manipulating our brains into impulsive decision-making, into feeling that we don't measure up and providing the quick fix for that, taking us away from meaningful use of the internet, which I think is a wonderful tool, how lack of sleep dramatically increases amygdala activity the very next morning with as much as a 60% increased level of activity in the amygdala after just one night of not restorative sleep and how long-term that can be profoundly damaging to impulsivity, even as it relates to food choices. As an example, research that we talk about in the book reveals that people who chronically don't get uh, enough sleep, that's a third of America in, in terms of adults, one third of us, end up consuming about 380 more calories each day without an increase in energy expenditure. So a net increase of 380 calories. When you realize that, it's only 3,500 calories to make a pound of fat. That's a week, you know, a week of just uh, of increased caloric consumption. And, you know, I'm quite aware of that we've moved past the idea of a calorie in and a calorie out mentality. We could talk about that. But but all of these things in the beginning of Brainwash are are presented so that people can have these aha moments and say, I never realized how threatening my snoring might be, or the fact that I'm on my computer at night and the blue light is threatening my ability to get a restorative night's sleep, or that I need to maybe get a sleep study and, and get some metrics on how well I'm sleeping, that my food choices, I'm making bad food food choices, but the food choices are making bad decisions. We've always said, well, I'm making bad food choices. Now we realize that the food choices we make threaten our decision ability And that becomes a very powerful feed-forward cycle. So part one is getting a handle on all of these influences and appreciating them, lovingly appreciating that's what's going on, taking a deep breath, and then go on to part two, what in the heck can I do about it?
0: Yeah. So one thing you said there that I'd love to touch on and have you explain, because you did such a great job in the book, is this idea of measuring up. We all see people on social media. Everyone's got their their best foot forward. And all of a sudden, I feel like, oh, I can't keep up. And so, how is that driving this amygdala-based response?
1: Well, it, it drives the amygdala-based response because at the same time, we are made to feel that we don't measure up. We're not rich enough, thin enough, handsome enough. We don't have as many followers as we'd like to have we are immediately provided the remedy for that via our digital experience. Instant weight loss programs, you name it, it's right there. So it caters to this notion of making an impulsive decision. And, you know, the Dalai Lama said in a brilliant moment of understanding neuroplasticity, he's actually very much involved in neuroscience, as you may know. He said that the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. Meaning that what we do, our brains adapt and change and mold themselves through this process of neuroplasticity to become adaptable and a conduit, conduit for that type of activity. Meaning the more that we play into this quick fix mentality mm-hmm. And go down these rabbit holes uh, that, uh, that appear suddenly on our when we're on the internet and distract us away from our task, the more we wire the brain directly to that sort of activity through the amygdala and other areas, and less away from prefrontal cortex. And you know, recognize that one of the really primary functions of this prefrontal cortex top-down activity is that it top-down regulates these emotional responses from the amygdala. It is very much like having the adult in the room. And you know what happens when the amygdala is left to its own devices? It's the kids uh, with teenage kids and 30 of their closest friends and mom and dad left that house to them for the weekend while they went on a cruise. How's that going to play out? I submit not really that well. This is having the amygdala back under the control of these higher brain centers. We're trying to stop the disconnection. And that's this, again, disconnection syndrome that uh, we focus on in the book, which leads to other manifestations. It leads to disconnection from other people, disconnection from considering our future selves. And there are many manifestations of this.
0: Yeah, you did a really good job in the book talking about the reward system and, you know, evolutionarily, what would have actually uh, stimulated the reward system, right? So it would have been hunting, like the seek and, and I'm going to hunt. It would have been sex. It would have been connection with others. It would have been connection with nature, kind of filling us up. And that would be really all, like our reward system would have been very it was a very narrow number of things stimulating our reward system. So it had to be a really sensitive system to where you got a little bit of reward. You wanted more of that because that's what kept us alive. And now we've got all of these things from food and social media and music and, and all these other things that are actually giving us that same reward system artificially. And we're losing those natural connections that we need with the things that ultimately fill us up and heal us. And that's so interesting that it was such a narrow number of things That uh, our body kind of historically, evolutionarily responded to for the reward system.
1: Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, this is just an an example of what we call an environmental mismatch. Yeah. Hey, it's really what the paleo movement is all about, trying to emulate what our lifestyles of our ancestors must have been like, mostly by looking at a paleolithic diet. But you know what? There are so many other aspects of our lives that we should think about in terms of what our ancestors were exposed to. For example, You know, at nighttime it was dark. It wasn't lit up by your computer screen or other sources of blue light. We were very social in those days and that was very health providing and and sustaining for us. That's a hack now into into what we think is social by being on social media. But I think the most obvious reward system hack has been our sweet tooth. I mean, what a powerful mechanism our sweet tooth has been throughout our history to keep us alive, to allow us to survive. Sweet tooth allowing us to identify ripened fruit. Sweet fruit has sugar in it, which was the most wonderful thing for a a mutation actually that occurred in great apes that uh, allowed us to build body fat more aggressively when we ate the uh, ripened fruit high in fructose in the day, when food was scarce. And it's actually, the the story of that is a beautiful story about how apes, their environment changed, and certain of the great apes that had this mutation were able to have higher levels of fructose, making something called uric acid, tended to cause a low grade of diabetes, or at least insulin resistance, which made them store fat. Well, we carry that mutation, if you will, and allowed humans to survive during times of caloric scarcity it has been called the thrifty gene whereby we can be really handling calories that we have uh, very carefully and add body fat so we can survive. Now there's no scarcity of of food and that is working dramatically against it. So it's a classic description of an environmental mismatch. We don't have times of food scarcity, but having said that, it really does speak to this whole notion of intermittent fasting being good for us and caloric restriction being good for us that we're hearing so much about these days. That is hearkening back to amplifying the good sides of uh, the various genes that are involved in this understanding and making them work for us, as opposed to what we see by and large in the developed world, uh, working dramatically against us, leading to diabetes, metabolic syndrome, weight gain, and and
0: ultimately inflammation, which does what? Threatens our decision-making,
1: making the whole thing worse
0: yeah absolutely incredible now i think you know i was thinking about this recently this idea that consumerism begins with babies so parents are told that if you don't feed your child this many times a day they're going to be sick and they're going to die so, so you know any 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 responsible parent goes oh my goodness, I need to feed them you know, five times a day, otherwise they're gonna be sick and die. And that that becomes part of the child's mechanism. Like I have to eat. We are we indoctrinated consumerism at such a young age. It's literally part of who we are. I'd love to just hear your opinion on like, I know you're a fan of intermittent fasting, but should eating inherently as a human just be based on not necessarily reward, just based on fuel? And should it be based on I eat when I'm hungry or should there be some type of rhythmic go with the circadian rhythm type of eating? Pattern. Well, what you brought up there at the very end, go with the circadian rhythm.
1: You know, I think there's great value to that. I think there's great value to understanding that when we sleep, we shouldn't really be digesting and hence we should be eating maybe at least three hours prior to going to sleep. Dr. Sachin Panda has written about this wonderful uh, information. And that we do have a circadian, uh, circadian circa, meaning around dia, meaning day, uh, around which our various parts of our physiology work better than others. We seem to expect that we're going to be doing most of our digestion in the middle of the day. In Ayurvedic medicine, the teachings were that your digestion mirrors the place in the sky where the sun is. That when the sun is at its highest, that's when you should be eating most because your digestive fire is at its highest level. That's 3,000-year-old information. It seems pretty darn Accurate to me even today, so you you wonder about where does this information come from? But I think you know it's sort of maybe trial and error to see what has happened. But a lot of our uh, socially adopted ideas of right and wrong have been given to us by institutions that have not necessarily our health in mind, but more the institution, the various councils, the grain council, the dairy council have their agendas, and that works its way into what government recommendations are. The three squares a day have three glasses of milk a day because it's good for strong bones. That isn't reality. That's not what the science is telling us. So I think what we have to do is get back to using our prefrontal cortex rather than the amygdala and try to make sense of the most in, the best information that's out there, and instead of just being impulsive and doing what our instincts and drives are telling us, because those drives have been manipulated. Let's just face it. Somebody one day woke up in the morning said, "I have an idea. Three meals a day. That's what we'll do. We'll call them breakfast, lunch, and, and now it's, it's you know, the dogma.
0: Yeah. It's been suggested that was uh, 1860 when they needed to kind of perpetuate factory workers, right? So they wanted the factory workers to be fed before they came in. And snack.
1: Exactly right. And so there were your breaks. And that is counter to the benefit of what we call hormesis or low-grade stress of not eating. I've been quoted before saying that there's no one who doesn't eat breakfast. Everybody eats breakfast breakfast, break fast. We all ultimately break our fast. It could be at 6 p.m., but that's your break fast by definition. So if you decide to protract your eating for many hours and have a 16, 18-hour period from last night to when you eat the next day, that turns out to have some pretty positive health benefits, as so many authors, research scientists have described, not just in rodents, but in humans as well. And ultimately, this gets us back to reducing This cardinal inflammation, the central mechanism uh, that we, again, recognize is so pivotal in so many of our chronic diseases, but is also involved in disconnecting us, disconnection syndrome, as we describe, from the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, we present a variety of of techniques to even using one of them. Maybe it's getting a better night's sleep. Maybe it's evaluating your sleep using a, a sleep study or a wearable device, and you learn that Guess what? I am not sleeping as well as I thought I was. I did that. I got an aura ring that said, Yeah, I'm getting seven and a half hours of sleep, but my deep sleep was not where I wanted it. That's when you clean out your brain of the various accumulants uh, during the previous day. And that was because of some lifestyle changes that I tweaked a little bit. The time of day that I said, No more screen time, writing a book, but yet I said, I can't do it. I've got to pay attention here and improve my deep sleep. So, the beauty of today, the beauty of technology is we have so many ways of getting immediate feedback as to our interventions. We can measure our own blood sugar now and our keto level with a, a simple finger stick. We can measure the quality of our sleep, as mentioned, and make these tweaks. You know, this is called biohacking. But the other side of that coin is we don't have to have technology to biohack. We we know what the important things are. And these are our ideas that have been Talked about for thousands of years, the idea of being mobile, of even our posture. I recently interviewed uh, Aaron Alexander, uh, has a new book that's out and brilliant information about how important it is. I think it's called the Align Method. Yeah, and uh, you know Kelly Sturette talking about th- this problem that we have that we're sitting down so much and talking about how sitting is a new smoking, the threat of that. That's not obviously how our ancestors spent their day. They weren't sitting on their butts in front of a computer screen. Well, if your work requires you to be in front of a computer screen, well, do it, but stand up frequently. That's associated with a significant reduction in risk for chronic disease. We should have expected it. You know, I think that the overreaching message here is that we can reconnect through, as we talked about, this neuroplasticity in our favor. We can reconnect to the adult in the room and be able to regain. We can right the ship. We can regain the ability to make great decisions. And then whatever it is you may be interested in that you think is going to be good for you. Maybe it's some new exercise protocol or whatever it is. You thought about it, but you just, you know, you woke up in the morning and you said, I'm staying in bed. Impulsive decision. No, we're gaining, we're bringing the adult back in the room. It's going to say, you know what? If you want to be healthier, you want to, lose some weight in uh, the next couple of months, and feel better about things, let's go ahead and try the program.
0: Yeah. Millions and millions of people in America are suffering with anxiety and fear and it's, et cetera, et cetera, right? Depression, all the other neurological conditions. So obviously there's a varying continuum of how far and how deep people are into this state of amygdala response. So I'm going to assume, and I'm going to speak for some of the people listening, that they may be under the the false pretense, or, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Maybe they're too far gone. Like is there a point where someone may not be able to recover from this amygdala-based thinking process? You know, they're now at the point where they may need some medication to calm down that, that amygdala response, or is it something that everyone ultimately should be focusing on and, and concentrating on? I'm just I'm just curious because I know there's some people who are Well, those two things are not
1: mutually exclusive. I think everyone should be focusing on it. I would say I don't think anyone's too far gone, but I will say there is absolutely the time for medication has released anxiety. It can be, it can be life-saving, no question about it. Why do we still have prescription pads? There is a time and a place, but to think that your anxiety is a deficiency of that drug is kind of the mentality that's put upon people that they need this for the rest of their lives. And that gets, I think, to the heart of your question. And you don't cure anxiety or depression for that matter, When you take the pill, you don't cure diabetes by taking a pill that lowers your blood sugar. I recently gave a talk to a group of 400 doctors up in Pennsylvania and uh, Philadelphia. And, you know, I said, well, how do you know, what are you guys doing to, to cure diabetes? And the hands went up, I use this drug, I use that drug. And I said, well, put your hands down because none of those drugs cures the problem. What you're doing is temporarily lowering the blood sugar. And I said, let me ask you a question. Let's say whatever drug you're using, you take that person off the drug. What's going to happen in two or three days? Oh, they said, "Well, the blood sugar is going to go up." Yeah. So, did you cure the problem? Then they got it. So, we need to focus on the fire, not the smoke. Here, mainstream medicine pretty much focuses on treating the smoke and ignoring the underlying fire. And as it relates to anxiety, for example, we understand that anxiety is an amygdala sort of re- not sort of amygdala response to a perceived threat, a perceived challenge that is not a real challenge. It is good to respond to a threat or challenge. And it's generally what the amygdala is is doing for you. It allows you to flee a dangerous situation. When you're in your car and you're in the driveway and backing up and suddenly in the rearview mirror, there's a kid on a tricycle, the prefrontal cortex isn't going to say, well, There's a child behind the car on a tricycle. Hmm. What is likely going to happen here as we play it forward where likely the car may run over that kid and that's not a good thing. You don't want to be having that discussion in your brain. In fact, you don't even want to have a discussion and you don't. What happens is, bam, your foot hits the brake, you stop. And then you say, oh, what just happened? Oh, wow. Lucky I did that. That's an amygdala response. That's one of the upsides of the amygdala, we need that kind of instantaneous reactivity, but we don't need that instantaneous reactivity when somebody writes an Instagram post that we don't like, or says something to us that is we feel is negative, or tweets about us. We don't need an amygdala-based immediate re- response on Twitter or whatever it is, whatever it, it may be. That's when we bring online the pensive part of the brain, where we get to look at the possible outcomes, interpret the event, and really think it through. That's what defines us as humans. So that said, again, anxiety, getting back to your question, is when the amygdala is triggered by something that's not necessarily threatening, but triggers a previous relationship that seemed to threaten. Pulse rate goes up, you get sweaty, all of those sympathetic system activities that define anxiety when there was no true threat. And therefore, reconnecting to the prefrontal cortex through what we're talking about is powerfully important for individuals like that. Now, as it relates to depression, we recognize fully today that there is a robust literature indicating this relationship between depression and inflammation. There it is again. That depression may well be an inflammatory disorder. We know that exercise helps in the treatment of depression. We know that exercise is associated with reduced risk for depression in the first place. Exercise does a couple of things. It increases in the brain a chemical called BDNF that may play a role, brain-drug neurotrophic factor. But in addition, exercise lowers cortisol and lowers inflammation. Depression is more aggressive in people who are not sleeping well. What does sleep do? Increases inflammation fosters this uh, disconnection. So it's the best of all worlds to think about both mainstream treatment in acute situations, but also looking at the fire. And how incredible that we use this metaphor, treating the smoke and ignoring the fire, when the fire uh, is the inflammation. And in fact, that's what the word means in Latin. Inflame, inflamare is where inflammation comes from. So it is literally the body being uh, on fire and the brain especially.
0: I'm thinking of people right now listening to the podcast who have uh, ingrained habits around food. So they feel stress, they eat. It's it's a reactive, it's an amygdala-based response. They're in that moment right now. What is your suggestion to start the first thing to break that habit? How do you suggest most people become aware and then remove themselves?
1: Well, I think step one is to, is to get an understanding of this balance in the brain's mem- areas that are involved in decision-making. That'd be the most important thing. Let's just say I'm talking to a patient right now. You know, doc... I just can't, I'm eating these foods all day and I know they're bad for me, but what the heck, you know, I know I gain weight and my blood sugar is going up, but I'm taking the medicine and my, you know, I'm taking the cholesterol pill and now my blood pressure is up, taking something for that too. What I would say in the first visit is let's not make any changes in any of that stuff. Don't even think about your food. For now let's see if there's another on-ramp to better decision making this week and let's just as an example realize that this impulsivity that you're describing may be uh, contributed to by your lack of sleep and let's just focus for the next two weeks on your sleep hygiene we're going to say this is easy enough no caffeine after 2 p.m no screen time after 5 p.m let's finish dinner by 6 p.m and Just do those things. Maybe bump up the exercise a little bit. That'll help you sleep. And let's just do that. And what we find is that sleep, for example, is a powerful on-ramp to better decision-making that then opens the door next time around to, okay, here we are. You've worked on your sleep. Now that person's in a better position to make better changes moving forward. Let's bring on another player. Let's talk about exercise. Well, Doc, I really, you know, that's not for me. I am mean, you're going to tell me you want me to go walk for an hour a day. I'll say, no, I'm looking for 10 minutes. I'm trying to get my foot in the door. Can you give me an hour a day? Oh, that's not going to happen. Can you give me 20 minutes? How's 10 minutes? Oh, I can do that. And now that patient's much more likely or individual says to himself, not a doctor-patient relationship. That's why we wrote the book. Says, you know, for some reason, I can't understand it. I think I'm more likely to do that. And guess what? Their decision-making was improved by the two weeks of better sleep. And looking at our 10-day program, yeah, it's not just sleep and exercise, the foods we eat, keeping a gratitude diary, reconnecting to nature is a powerful on-rep to better decision-making. So there's a lot of things that we can look at that we add in on the program. And before you know it, through this beautiful ability that we have called neuroplasticity, you're reconnecting to the decision-making part of your brain that thinks about the future, that thinks about you in the future, and also is paying more attention to your neighbors and paying more attention to even the health of the planet around us. And wow, if we can get. One-tenth of one tenth of 1% of the planet's population to think about how important this is, that would be huge. I'm just going to tell you that somehow uh, with this book on Pub Day, when it was published here in America just recently, it had already been acquired by 16 countries around the world, including uh, South Korea, Russia, Turkey, Spain, France, Germany. So, you know, a lot of places around the world, England resonating with the idea that. That we've got to do better. We really need to do better. We all are on this journey together. It is not us versus them. The more we do that, the worse off we're going to be. And and so that's, again, getting back to your question
0: one. And that's, that's why we did it. I'm sitting here smiling, Dr. Pumata, because you have so many nutritionists out there who say, well, it's all about macros and we got to just reduce their macros and they're overeating. And yes, those things are all true, but that's their coping mechanism, right? These people are all stressed, anxious, fearful. That's their learned coping strategy. And now you're going to say, hey, I'm going to take that coping strategy away from you. What do they do? They have no choice but to then go into anxiety, fear, and panic, and overwhelm, and they can't sustain it. Everybody falls off their diet. Then they're locking in that, like, oh, I can't. I failed so many times before. I can't do it. So I love the fact that you're going after the, you know, I always say just, like, what's the low-hanging fruit? Like, what's that one lever you can pull that's going to get the greatest amount of response? So I'm sitting here literally smiling because all of those things are literally – I'm
1: smiling too because you really, really get this, and I'm loving our conversation. I just had chills down
0: my back. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so – I mean, everyone's going to respond differently to, to different environments Including blue light, right? And I talked to some people about that, as you bring up eloquently in the book. It's like if you're exposing yourself to blue light, most people don't even realize how much that's impacting deep sleep, quality of sleep. And they wake up and you're like, oh, you know, I ate poorly today. It's just this negative spiral. And I spoke recently on a podcast how. I succumb to it. I pride myself on being a relatively disciplined guy. But then you find yourself, and I, like you said earlier, like you've become victim to it at, at some time in your life as well. You can't override it unless you become extremely conscious and I think you bet. Uh, indoctrinate the, hobbits, the habits that are building your free cortex that you talk about in the podcast and in the book.
1: Yeah, and another important Ben in my life is Dr. Ben Lynch. And I was so taken yesterday that, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. He's really into genomics, interpretation of your genome, and just breathtaking information about what you can do if you happen to have these polymorphisms that increase your risk for one thing or another. He wrote a a comment on Brainwash on Amazon, and he was extremely transparent about how this has been a challenge for him as well in terms of the time he spends with his family and The interruptions by the phone what's on the computer and we are all on the same side of this discussion and as well yours truly i mean and it's all about though morphing those habit type decisions into mindful decisions that ultimately serve to be positive for you that's the reward that we're looking for not the immediate dopamine type reward that you referred to earlier But the long-term reward of better health, longevity, better relationships with others, better relationship with yourself. Empathy. And we talk about empathy not just towards another person, feeling you know, doing things for other people, but you can have empathy towards your future self. That is a, a
0: distinct entity for what you do today will have outcome. So one thing I want to throw out there is I have this sense that this scenario that you're very clearly explaining and helping us with is almost going to become the smoking of 2020, you know, of of this century, whereas people don't actually acknowledge they have a problem until they're in in this negative spiral of anxiety and depression. So I'd love for you to maybe give us a hint or something that you would say to these people, because I know, as you do, thousands, if not millions of people who are so submersed in their phone and they think they're doing themselves a good job. They're building their business or they're engaging people on social media. They think they're doing something good for themselves and they may not have that negative association yet. we like, hey, I actually wanna change this. You know, and I know there's people listening who are like, yep, that's me. Like, I enjoy this, I wanna do this. This is my social en- engagement. So what's the thin end of the wedge in the door for those people to say, hey, you're a victim of this too. Like, what should we be saying to them?
1: Let's say your goal is to have a successful business. We have been convinced that spending a lot of time on the internet, burning the midnight oil, staying up at late, and all these things are ultimately the key to success. But the reality is that they are distancing you and keeping you away from connecting to that part of the brain that you need the most. You want success in your business. You want long-term success. You want it to be successful by thinking about what we do today, all the things that we are doing to, to build a better widget to market it, to think of our public religion, all this stuff that goes in to having future success, that's prefrontal cortex type decision-making. That's not amygdala-based decision-making. So burning the midnight oil, staying up late, waking up early, sucking down a couple of cups of coffee to get started because I'm really tired, that enhances your impulsivity throughout the next day. So those decisions are not bringing on board this incredible resource of information and ability to pull together incredible amounts of seemingly disparate levels of knowledge to create what's called wisdom. Instead, you're impulsive. And that does not make for a good future in terms of how you're constructing the business, how you choose to work with your money? What are your finances like? Are you buying and selling day-to-day based on impulse? Or do you finally sit down and say, you know, I'm going to think of long-term investing, which, you know, for most people is something that they probably should be doing, certainly with respect to health. So as a doctor in training, we have to make good decisions, right? We can't be impulsive. We have to make decisions based upon bring as much data to bear on that decision as we can, really letting that prefrontal cortex do its job. And yet during our residency training, when we're making life and death decisions every single day, we are eating horrendously horrible food that's available in the hospital. We don't sleep. We're working a hundred hour weeks. We Some nights go with no sleep whatsoever and we're under stress. So we are fostering impulsivity And, you know, that really sets the stage for issues even after residency when doctors go out and begin practice. I had a meeting just this morning at a hospital with uh, with the people in the hospital who are involved in this kind of stuff saying, we want to create a program for our doctors because of the degree of burnout that we are seeing. What can we do? And it's exactly what we're talking about. You brought up earlier, you know, what, what this has been going on for a long time neuroplasticity you get a second chance you can rewire the brain that is an incredible gift so what do we do to enhance that ability we know what the goal is we want to reconnect to the prefrontal cortex we can enhance neuroplasticity with nutritional supplementation things like dha from fish oil for example turmeric which is you know really very popular because of its anti-inflammatory effects also enhances the development of this BDNF to make better neuroplasticity. And perhaps what doesn't cost anything is aerobic exercise that enhances this process where we can connect to not just the prefrontal cortex, but the entire brain can experience better connection when we get aerobic exercise. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a bit simplification, uh, maybe even almost derogatory to say it's low hanging fruit. But I'm telling you that, uh, you know, the, the research that went into this book really characterizes it as low-hanging fruit. And, you know, it's been said every journey begins with the first step. And the good news about this journey is by taking that very first step, the, the ensuing steps are going to be easier and easier.
0: How do you eat every day, Dr. Perlmutter? I think, you know, le- learning what your choices are as anti-inflammatory, or at least low low-inflammatory foods more accurately love to hear just what that looks like on a day-to-day basis and things maybe that you avoid consciously. I usually eat either one or two meals a day. Oh, God forbid you don't have three meals a day. You know, there was a time
1: we were told, well, the brain needs constant fuel. You should eat three meals a day and then a lot of snacks in between. Wow, we'll leave that for another day. (laughs) So you eat one or two meals a day and generally for breakfast, that'll be some kind of salad. I'm big on kale salad. You know, I know kale is the vegetable du jour. Uh, but I, I like kale salad. I like any, and it is a cruciferous vegetables, cruciferous vegetable. I think there's really important upside of the cruciferous vegetables. I like a lot of broccoli sprouts on my kale salad that I'm very careful to chew aggressively and fully because when you do that, you're allowing certain things to happen to give your body higher levels of a chemical called sulforaphane, which reduces inflammation. I cover everything I eat with extra virgin olive oil. I eat at least a liter of olive oil or drink rather
0: uh, each week. It seems like a lot. It's pure fat. I'm going to hook you up with my olive oil company. I've got a really good one if you don't already have them, but I'll tell you. You know what? I'm all in. So
1: olive oil is really very important. I do have coffee, probably about two cups a day. Uh, I, I eat early in the evening. I am not a vegetarian, but I am more and more recognizing the value of more vegetables on the plate, which now makes up most of the plate. That's the grain brain doctor who people thought was, you know, Atkins Redux, never was, but look for a lot of color on the plate. I try to have at least one meal a day, fully plant based for myself and for you and for the planet. So I think that that is a good choice on multiple levels. The main thing I'm trying to accomplish with my diet is to reduce inflammation. At the same time, if we can augment my ability to create antioxidants in my body, great. To detox, which is, again, what that sulforaphane from the broccoli sprouts is all about, that's important as well. You know, I think about these foods and what they're doing for me. So my uh, eating experience is a mindful experience. It's not an impulsive experience that I want this, I'll eat it now, and that's it, end of story, and move on. But when you're eating your meal in front of the TV and if it's the news, especially, or on the phone or in front of the computer, there's no connection. So I think it's very, very valuable to eat in an atmosphere that allows you to connect with what you're doing and certainly to connect with the people that you're sharing the
0: meal with. Do you think people should be avoiding meat or uh, limiting meat, or if it's high quality, sustainably farmed, grass-fed, uh, you know, wild meats? Do you think that still plays an important role? Maybe muscle maintenance and preventing sarcopenia.
1: There is an upside to eating meat, but it has to be, in my opinion, the type you described. It should be grass-fed or wild, uh, as it relates to fish. And there, there are upsides. We know, for example, that in women, the iron availability, well, in both men and women, iron availability is better than it is with plant-based sources. But at the same time, uh, I think that being on a vegan diet can work for people very, very well. Each of these diets, there are things to consider. And I think that the, you know, the issue with meat is have at it. I mean, uh, I, I might have some red meat once in a while as well. No big deal. But important what I just said no big deal, meaning no big deal serving i'm not aggressively weight training right now so i don't really need a lot we now understand that you know eating a lot of protein like that does tend to tamp down a process in the body called autophagy where we're actually able to clear out you know cellular debris uh, etc so we're learning more and more about that the role that eating a high protein diet has on uh, what's called igf1 and something called mTOR pathways you know i I would say to those who want to eat some meat that's reasonable. Uh, you, again, you could be really healthy being vegan, but there is a trend that I'm seeing right now of being fully carnivorous day in and day out. And uh, at the risk of being offensive to anybody, in my opinion, you're missing out on some really important parts of nutrition, primarily dietary fiber, which is really, really key for nurturing the gut bacteria. So each diet has There are things that we should consider, you know, being purely vegan, you want to be mindful of magnesium, vitamin D, iron, vitamin B12, eating a lot of meat, you're not, you know, meat does not contain any fiber. You should be thinking about that. So each diet has its nuance.
0: Have you explored the idea that I've heard have some people come on talking about that fiber might not be necessary at all, you know, that they're still going to produce butyric acid from ketones because you're in a ketogenic state if you're carnivorous. I'd just be curious to hear what your opinion is, if you explored that at all. You
1: know, it's not the butyric acid. We know that that's one of the short-chain fatty acids that we like. Sure. But it's not just the production of butyric acid that is the job of the, of the gut bacteria. Of course, yeah. uh, We recognize that it's the balance of, uh, you know, the three short-chain fatty acids that seems to be important. But beyond that, that uh, healthy diversity of gut bacteria is needed for maintenance of the, the gut lining, the integrity of the gut lining, when that is threatened, because we've threatened the gut bacteria by not giving them what they need in terms of dietary fiber, it tends to lead to increased gut permeability, which is central as it relates to production of inflammation. Gut bacteria are involved in the production of neurotransmitters, in the production of B vitamins and a variety of other mediators that are really very valuable, even to the extent that some of these mediators change the genetic expression of our own cells so I think it goes well beyond the fact that, you know, being on a ketogenic diet is going to allow you to make hydroxybutyrate.
0: It seems like doctors are split right down the middle, right? So you have some doctors saying, hey, vegetables are creating lectins or, or have lectins and, and they're causing inflammation with whether it be oxalates or lectins or all these other anti-nutrients, phytic acid, those are causing inflammation and in, in leaky gut. And then you have, you know, what you're saying is like this carnivore diet isn't giving your body what it needs to heal the gut. But then you see, you see people. And I'm sure you're aware of these people who've had autoimmune conditions completely healed by going on a carn- carnivorous diet. So they're removing plants and allowing the gut to then heal. Their argument is, "Hey, removing these things that are toxic and causing inflammation, plants are actually allowing, giving my body the chance to heal." And I think the answer probably, and you'll agree, lies somewhere in the middle. It's like nothing is, is perfect on either extreme. But yeah, you know, and, and I would say uh, I wouldn't say that we're split down the middle in the in the
1: idea of plant lectins. I think that. It's an interesting discussion, but I wouldn't say half of people believe it and half of people don't. I think uh, it's a bit more polarized than that. Truthfully, at the end of the day, I think that we should be considering this notion of what's called personalized medicine and personalized nutrition, whereby we are able to cultivate for each individual what her or his ideal diet would look like. And, you know, there are plenty of companies that are doing that or t- attempting to do that based upon genetics based upon looking at the microbiome, uh, based on a hybrid of these two inputs. And I think ultimately that's where we will go. I think it's reasonable to explore different dietary patterns in people suffering from different illnesses. I would say that by and large, my recommendation for autoimmunity is more of a plant-based diet because of its lower inflammatory potential and its effects upon the gut permeability issue, which is central in terms of autoimmune conditions. There are lots of books out there relating to autoimmune conditions, things like Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, rheumatoid arthritis, and MS. And by and large, most of those really do focus on more of a plant-based diet, but talk a lot about the value of eating the right kinds of fats. We now recognize that fats are powerful arbiters of immune status, you know, certain of the omega 3s work to dramatically reduce inflammation. And now hot off the press is the information that shows at least one pathway whereby that works involves what's called the endocannabinoid system. So as we are talking about, you know, the role of these uh, endocannabinoids, anandamide and 2AG being made by omega 6 vegetable oils that tend to be pro inflammatory, but that we can block the activities of those endocannabinoids with an omega-3 rich diet, it really sews together two really incredible areas of interest, You know the cannabinoids, things like CBD, plant cannabinoids, and the endocannabinoids, and then the whole idea of these omega-3s and omega-6s. So for me, it was like working a jigsaw puzzle. And I did something, you know, with the house that sort of had the red roof. And then I began working on another part of the road with the trees. And now suddenly they're fitting together. I'm going, great, I just solved half the puzzle. You know, you get get the metaphor. So two seemingly disparate areas are coming together now. And it's really kind of some beautiful
0: biochemistry. Awesome. Dr. Promata, you speak a lot around the country. I'd love to hear where people can learn more from you. Obviously, your websites are a great place to go, but do you have any talks coming that the public can access to come see you and hear
1: well, let's see. We're doing a presentation in May at 1440. That is a retreat in California. Very soon, I guess about a month from now, I'll be doing a uh, lecture at an integrative healthcare symposium in New York City. The good news is people don't have to travel. I, I do a lot of podcasting on drperlmutter.com. drperlmutter.com. And beyond the fact that I'm, I'm there giving information out, We have created just an incredibly robust body of scientific literature that's searchable, a searchable database for people. So it brings to the point here of it's great to have these opinions, but, you know, I want, you know, it's really important for me and for Austin Perlmutter, who co wrote the book, that when we make these statements, you know, there's some pretty good science that's behind it. And, you know, when we quote a statistic saying that 87% of Americans' time is spent indoors with another 6% in our cars, whoa, you know, we didn't dream it up. (laughs) That's from research. So I want people to know that all of that information that we we talk about, the original research is available. So that's a, a great place to go. The book has its own page and it's called Brainwash Book
0: dot com. I think every one of the listeners is going to go out and pick up this book, certainly the audio book. And you know, I think that goes without saying because I'm going, to, I'm going to be a massive advocate, not only on this episode, but following episodes, because it's definitely something that will, I believe, change the world. And, and I think one of my one big aspects of my mission is not just to help people build their body. That's very, very long gone. But it's, it's this realization that I believe the body can be a vehicle to changing the mind. And, and you're just tying in another piece, as like giving people all of the awarenesses that exist of like all these other things that are hacking their brain and preventing them from living their greatest life full of joy and happiness and fulfillment. So thank you so much. You know, what? We that's what we want. Yeah. And it's what we need and we can, you know, we can do better.
1: And so, you know, we look upon this as, as I mentioned, being the bridge between information and action. We don't suffer from a lack of information these days. Gosh, there's great information out, out there, but we just have to be able to decide to implement.
0: Dr. Pramod, you're absolutely amazing. And like I said, you've got a fan and, and a supporter in me. Thank you very much for making time in your busy schedule.
1: Well, feelings mutual. I know we've met in person at uh, Paleo, but so nice to spend so much time with you today and have a great conversation. Thank you.
0: And that's a wrap. Ladies and gents, thank you very much for joining me today. As always, I'm incredibly grateful for you giving me your time and your attention. I realize your attention is being pulled in so many different directions. And the fact that you chose to be here with me in the Muscle Intelligence Podcast means the world to me truly. Uh, as I continue to build my knowledge and skill set, I'm so grateful for Dr. Perlmutter joining me today to tell us about how we are being brainwashed and-, and I don't think it's a negative thing. I don't think people are doing this from a negative perspective. They're just trying to build their business and they found a way that they can hack our brains and we should be grateful for the ability to have social media, the ability to have the internet, yet still be in conscious control of our mind and our brain our ability to make decisions that allow us to move forward in our life and, and live our greatest life rather than living in this unconscious box of fear, anxiety, and ultimately depression uh, seems to be the kind of result. So I hope each and every one of you guys has a smile on your face right now from the amazing content that Dr. Perlmutter has just empowered us with. Head out, pick up his book, Brainwash. I give it my highest endorsement. Sincerely, a really well-written book. Absolutely loved it. His him and his son did an incredible job. Yeah, head over to brainwashbook.com to pick it up. You can also grab it from the affiliate link or the Amazon affiliate link in the show notes. And obviously, transparently we will take kickback from that to fund the podcast and the growth of this podcast. So we can get more amazing guests like Dr. Perlmutter. Again, I appreciate you so much. I hope you're smiling. I hope you have joy in your heart. I hope you're able to meditate, breathe, and walk today. So that you can build your prefrontal cortex, just like Dr. Perlmutter suggests. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.